Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and as ever I'm joined by CJ McKinney. CJ has just been on a podcasting course and you might notice a few differences this month including the intro music. I haven't actually heard the music yet at the time of recording but CJ assures me that it's not going to be the death metal whale that might arguably suit the subject matter. This month, we're starting in the Supreme Court with its decision on the workers' registration scheme. We're going to tackle some recent controversies over long residence and passport e-gates before running through the latest case law on asylum. We've got a few quick updates on work visas and deportation law, and we're going to conclude with something on appeals. All right, over to you, CJ. Thanks, Colin. Our case of the month, if you like, is Gubaladze 2019 UKSC 31. This was the Supreme Court confirming that the worker registration scheme you mentioned was unlawful between 2009 and 2011. The government was entitled to make people from certain mostly Eastern European countries that, that joined the EU in 2004 to make them register on arrival for a maximum of seven years, but only as long as it was proportionate to do so. Uh, and the government didn't really give any consideration to whether extending the scheme for those extra two years, 2009 to 20. 11 was proportionate it just went ahead and did it uh, essentially it seems fair enough in legal terms colin but isn't this just ancient history now yeah it, it's 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 quite a big case in some ways um but it's also it's kind of so big that it's hard to see how to put things right now because i literally hundreds of thousands of people seem to have been forced to apply under the the workers registration scheme when it was unlawful for them to do so and it's quite hard to see how the home office can put that right now and there was a, a £90 fee to register. Arguably, all of those fees should be refunded now. We know that quite a few people have been refused permanent residence and or citizenship because the Home Office says that their residence wasn't lawful. Um, and, and you know, reaching out to those people and finding them is, is a really major undertaking. So in policy terms, this is a pretty big um, screw-up, essentially, that the, the Supreme Court has, has revealed here. Um, but the actual practical implications are kind of almost so huge that it is very hard to see what's what's going to happen next if anything you did mention in your piece that people might be able to get criminal convictions overturned though yeah if there were any I and mean, this is one of those things where um you know it's another new criminal offense that was added to the statute book i suspect there haven't been any convictions um under the offense that was introduced along with quite a few of the immigration offenses that were introduced by the labor government from um 97 to, to 2010 um, so, you know, if there were any um, in those years, then they should certainly be appealed and overturned. But I, I've got a suspicion there probably weren't. Fair enough. Well, if anyone out there uh, does uh, have a conviction for not registering under the worker registration scheme uh, in that period, then good news for them. Let's look then at another case that generated a lot of discussion this month. This one had to do with the 10-year long residence route where people can settle in the UK if they've been living here continuously and lawfully for a decade. The Court of Appeals held that even tiny periods of overstaying will break that residence period, which is completely at odds with Home Office policy and practice. Uh, this is R. Ahmed and Secretary of State 2019 EWCA Civ 1070 very strict interpretation of the immigration rules here yes i kind of i i i know that this ruling has caused quite a lot of controversy and quite a, pe- a lot of people are upset about it to be honest i didn't think it was a very surprising outcome um there was a tribunal case that held the same and i thought it was kind of i was surprised that people thought that the ruling might have been otherwise to be honest and i think some of the 
commentary, and I don't think it's 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 necessarily the case on our website. I think the um, the, the the piece by by Nick doesn't do this, but the, some of the commentary and the, the comment has been confusing the rules with the policy, basically. And the, what the Court of Appeal is saying is that you know the residence does have to be genuinely continuous in order to meet the terms of the rules. I don't think that's particularly surprising. It is harsh, but I always thought the rules were pretty harsh anyway. It's just sort of confirmed by the Court of Appeal. That doesn't mean, however, that you can't have your application allowed outside the rules under the long residence policy. Now, if you're relying on a policy, it's a much less strong position that you're in. It's a much, you know, you're in a much weaker position with the Home Office because you can't appeal. A judicial review won't necessarily succeed. But the policy has always been that they'll overlook short gaps. That policy was withdrawn for a few years. Then it was very tight and then it was a bit looser. It kind of varies according to the date that you're applying. But the policy is still there. And, you know, in, in some cases, in some appeals, you know, I've, I've, I've had some success arguing that the, the policy should have been applied and that the, um, the decision, although strictly speaking correct under the rules, um, doesn't comply with the policy and therefore there's a breach of, of human rights. So it, it's not quite as surprising as all that, I, I think. And um, it doesn't mean that the policy um, doesn't exist or has been overruled. It's still there in the background. It's just that relying on a policy rather than the rules is a much less attractive proposition, basically. Let's turn to another sort of tricky issue that's come up. Uh, completely different context now. This is to do with passport e-gates. Uh, if you've been on holiday already this year you, uh, or recently, you'll have seen these sort of self-service passport machines where you go through passport control without seeing any immigration officer. They've been available to British and EU citizens at uh, airports for, for some time. But recently, the change is that they've started to accept passports from half a dozen other countries, uh, wealthy countries such as the US and Australia. Now, the problem with this uh, seemingly handy system is that there's a certain type of student leave that doesn't require a visa in advance, but does require the person to get a stamp in their passport on arrival, the short-term study route. So people who want to use this route but use the e-gate instead of getting their passport stamp are deemed to be visitors instead of short-term students and would be studying illegally. So the Home Office knows that this is a problem and has issued new guidance to cover it, but I don't think this solution is terribly practical. No, and there's a really good piece by Nicola on this who sort of highlighted it for us. And um, I think you you crunched the numbers, CJ, afterwards, and you you reckon there are about 3,000 students a year who are affected by this. So it's it's quite a considerable number. And um, the guidance from the Home Office is you know, isn't waiving the rules or saying that this isn't a problem. It says it is a problem. Universities or colleges can enrol one of these people who've accidentally entered as a visitor rather than as a short-term student for 30 days. But if they study for longer than that, then the college or whatever is in breach. The student is in breach and potentially they're, they're committing a criminal offence um, and they're going to have to leave the UK and re-enter, which is all very well if you're travelling in from France or something. But we're talking about Australia, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, you know, countries like that where airfares are quite considerable. So this is... Um, this is actually a pretty significant problem for a pretty significant number of people. And the Home Office really just doesn't seem that bothered about it. No, Nicola suggested in her piece that instead of messing around like this and telling people to fly out and fly back for, you know, just a short-term study period, they should just remove the restrictions on visitors studying altogether, which sounds a bit radical, maybe. 
Yeah, it's the, the problem is that the way that the visitor rules were rewritten a few years ago um, means that the Home Office has tried to define everything you are allowed to do as a visitor definitively. I and mean, whether the rules actually succeed in doing that, I think, is questionable. But that's certainly the the objective that the Home Office set itself. And they they said that you can't study um, for more than 30 days. So it's this kind of problem the Home Office has created for itself and then exacerbated with the eGate situation is that you've got these different types of visitors um, who, technically speaking, fall into different categories with different rules and conditions, although it's actually very difficult in real life to tell the difference between them. Let's turn then to asylum. All the cases we covered this month are, I think, helpful for asylum seekers, which is nice. The uh, nice change, at any rate. Uh, the first is KA Afghanistan and Secretary of State's 2019 EWCA Save 914. This had to do with an asylum seeker failing to take a reasonable opportunity to claim asylum in a country they pass through on their way to claiming asylum in the UK. The law says that that failure to claim elsewhere damages the person's credibility. Section 8.4 of the Asylum and Immigration Treatment of Claimants, etc. Act 2004. Now, in this uh, KA Afghanistan case, the Court of Appeal says, well, judges have to look at whether the person actually had a chance to claim asylum in that country they passed through. Yeah, and um, it's quite a critical judgment here. I mean, if you're a, a judge of the first tier or, or upper tribunal, you really don't want the court of appeal calling your decision perfunctory, which is is what happens here. And the, the two standout features: one is that the um, the person concerned was a kid, a child at the, the time that they passed through these third countries, and the second is that the, the the safe third country in question was Hungary, where there have been judgments saying that there's been a total collapse of their asylum system. And Turkey seems to have gotten a mention as well, which it's in statute terms isn't actually a safe third country in, in, in technical legal terms. So uh, Hungary should have been the focus. And um, no, it's a welcome decision, a realistic decision, pointing out that you know, you, you've know you got to look at these things properly rather than just sort of blindly um, applying some statutory criteria um, without really thinking about it. And particularly helpful for unaccompanied children, because that was the context, as you say, of the, uh, of the judgment. Yeah. Good. Next up, there's been a High Court decision on Iraqi asylum claims, SS and Secretary of State 2019 EWHC 1402 admin. The Home Office wanted to ignore a country guidance decision about the difficulties of getting an identity document if someone is removed to Iraq. Said they had new information from the Iraqi government on this point, but the court said that this information was very limited and it was irrational to rely on it instead of the country guidance Obviously, highly relevant to any Iraqi cases that people have, as well as more broadly could see the courts pushing back on Home Office country information where it's it's not up to snuff. Yeah, and, and, and the sort of standout feature here is that this is a, a fresh claim for asylum. So what the Home Office was doing here was saying that um, on the basis of this new information um, to which they are privy, they're able to refuse a fresh claim for asylum and that means that there's, it's not tested by a judge in court in the tribunal, which is just very strange, frankly. I mean, you, know, you can see that the Home Office has a legitimate case for saying, well, look, we've got this new information. The country guidance case is out of date. And, and that's fine. But it has to be tested in front of a judge. And the idea you should refuse a fresh claim without allowing it to go to appeal is, is just bizarre, frankly. So it's good to see that decision overturned here. Absolutely. Back then to the Court of Appeal for the issue of Albanian asylum claims being certified as clearly unfounded. 
This happens an awful lot by all accounts, but the Court of Appeal quashed this particular certificate. The case is SP Albania and Secretary of State 2019 EWCA Civ 951. The court reiterated that certification should only happen if, after assessing all the facts and evidence provided, it's clear that the claim is so clearly without substance, substance that it is, quote, bound to fail, which, which didn't happen in this case, evidently. No, I, so there, there has been a lot of um, action on sort of certification in Albanian cases. We've been doing quite a bit of coverage of different aspects of this, um, unaccompanied minors and things like that with um, um, with Albania. This, this You'd expect the Home Office and judges, frankly, to be much more cautious about people claiming to be trafficking victims from Albania, given that you know, it's known that that is a serious problem. Um, and... The idea that this is actually certified as being clearly unfounded seems seems pretty bizarre. But um, but but there we go. Good to see it being overturned, and um, hopefully you know we're going to see a change of approach at least from judges, if 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 not you know from the Home Office. Finally, on asylum, the news that there will be no return of the detained fast track system. The Tribunal Procedure Committee had been given the job of deciding whether to revive this sped up process for hustling asylum seekers out of the country without a proper appeal. It told the government no, any system that involved any kind of justice wouldn't be as quick as it was angry for. So there, the matter rests, I think. That seems to be the end of it. Yeah, end of story. I can't see the government trying again after this. Um, and it's a reminder that you know, for 15 years, we had this um, appeals process in place. It took a long time to get around to challenging it properly. Um, and, and the whole thing has been sort of struck down and, and it looks like permanently. Turning to work visas and the notorious figure of £30,000, which is the annual salary minimum that the Migration Advisory Committee has recommended for all foreign workers after Brexit, EU and non-EU alike. Employers have gone mad at this suggestion, to use a technical term, and the government has now said that it wants experts to look at this whole idea again. So it has commissioned the Migration Advisory Committee, the very body which proposed it in the first place. Uh, so we'll see what they come up with when they look at the same question they looked at last year. The other thing to be aware of on uh, work visas that if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister, as seems very likely at time of recording, he wants to uh, adjust the system still further, different to the white paper that we had last year. He has this radical new idea, Colin. I, I don't know if you've ever heard the like. It's called a points-based system. A points-based system? Well, that's a radical suggestion. It's not as if we haven't had one since 2009 or something like that. No, it, it's, a, it's a bit maddening that politicians just keep on coming back to this, this business of points-based systems when we've already got one. It's been tested pretty extensively. It was to all intents and purposes scrapped years ago, and it's still got the title, but it doesn't actually run on points, and it hasn't done for years. And I, I think and apparently this is because it, it tests well with or tested well in the past with focus groups because people associate Australia with a really strict immigration um, policy. And I think they pick people pick that up basically from the very um, harsh policies towards refugees. But in fact, Australian immigration policy is incredibly um, generous if if you're not a refugee. And um, they have huge levels of of immigration into Australia um, annually compared to, to the UK. So although people associate it with being strict, the reality is very different. It just isn't. And it sounds like, you know, various different people are kind of trying to use words that imply strictness without actually having to commit to a strict policy in practice. I, the, the Home Office has been busy basically saying that the points-based system, the existing points-based system in the UK is going to be scrapped. Um, in, you know, 
you, you can never tell with Boris Johnson whether anything he says is remotely serious or, or whatever. Um, it would be basically if 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 he becomes prime minister and if he insists on this becoming policy, the Home Office is going to have to go back, rip up the white paper that it's already done, rebadge everything as being somehow a points-based system, or perhaps just introduce uh, reintroduce a particular immigration route which is particularly points-based, a, a bit like the old um, tier one general of uh, sort of old old hacks will be sort of familiar with, got scrapped years ago, or something like that. But I mean, it, it's it, there's a lot of this this. This could be just words and fluff, or it could be that civil servants are really going to have to go back to the drawing board and, and come up with something that is called a points-based system, or that is actually a points-based system to, to meet these requirements. Yeah, we'll have to see how the politics of it translates into actual policy. And it, it may be that Mr. Johnson doesn't particularly mind once he gets uh, some kind of tweak that he can sell. One uh, case to look at in the area of uh, work visas, the Court of Appeal has declared that a work visa refusal that was based on the genuine vacancy rule was irrational. Unusual to see the court stepping in like this, uh, Nick says in his piece on the case. Uh, it might be helpful to people who have had similar problems with the Home Office deciding that a vacancy is not genuine. Uh, it is our sunny and sexy of state 2019 EWCA Civ 1019. Let's uh, move on then to deportation and another case, uh, an unusual case here in that the Court of Appeal upheld an appeal against a deportation order of someone with a fairly weighty criminal conviction, uh, five years imprisonment for uh, drug possession with intent to supply in JG Jamaica 2019 EWCA Civ 982. Uh, The killer evidence here seems to be medical evidence that uh, Mr. Uh, JG's British child would suffer severe psychological damage if he were deported. And maybe that's not something that would be applicable in every case, Colin, but good to know sort of what it takes to to get these appeals uh, upheld. Yeah, I think as as Ian says in his write up of this, it's um, you know this is something that's really on the facts rather than the law. There's no particularly novel legal point here. But it is useful to us to have some sort of example of a successful case. And um, you know, this is really pointing to not being able to rely on just the sort of general submission that a child is adversely affected and that meets the test. But there needs to be some sort of specific expert evidence um, that points to the effect on that particular child. And that may potentially meet the test. Excellent. A deportation case that I wrote up under the exhilarating headline, Detention in a Young Offender Institution Can Nullify Enhanced Protection Against Deportation. Enhanced protection here refers to the EU law rules on deporting someone after they've been here for 10 years or more. Imprisonment can break that 10-year continuity. And the issue in this case was whether youth detention is the same as imprisonment. Does it break that 10-year run? Uh, the court held basically yes it is there's no difference in principle between jail and youth detention uh, the citation for anyone who needs it is viscu 2019 ewca civ 1052 finally let's talk about appeals law and we have the return of the banger case from europe this was the one about the rights of extended family members of eu citizens 
the Court of Appeal ruled quite a while back, or sorry, the Court of Justice ruled a while back that they have the right to a proper appeal if refused a residence card to these extended family members. Mrs. Banger's case has now returned from the Court of Justice to the Upper Tribunal for a decision on her residence card. And it's been reported as Banger EEA EFM Right of Appeal 2019 UKUT 194 IAC. What's the significance of this one, Colin? Well, do you see what I do there with the post? Banger has finally reached the end of the road. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> anyway, um, the um, it, it, it's it's good that this is finally drawing to a conclusion. Not least for Ms. Banger herself. I mean, it's years and years this litigation has been going on. I, you know, at considerable expense, I, I imagine, and also huge inconvenience. Um, so um, good for her for 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 having to go through all this and and, and getting a great result. It's it's all about um, a particular tranche of people. This case, so she herself, I think, had actually been um, she hadn't been granted a residence card, but the Home Office said they will. So there, there was an undertaking that a residence card would be granted in her case. But the issue still arose of a, a tranche of people who um, had lost the right of appeal by falling in between the abolition of the old 2006 regulations, which we now know um, did actually afford a right of appeal. And the introduction of the right of appeal under the new 2016 regulations. And there's a kind of gap for people who received a decision between when the 2016 regulations were first introduced and when they were amended to, to, to introduce a right of appeal. And the tribunal says that if you fall into that um, situation, or for that matter, actually, I, I think this applies if you, you um, had effectively been denied a right of appeal under the 2006 regulations, then you can either ask the Home Office for a new decision and then appeal that, or probably, more sensibly, just get on with it, lodge the appeal yourself, but make sure that you apply for an extension of time relying on you know the, the fact that your right of appeal was unlawfully denied and, and quoting the banger judgment. And hopefully the tribunal will just get ahead and um, go ahead and, and list that. There's no there's no particular time limit on doing that. But if you're in that situation, you'd, you'd be well advised to get on with it as soon as possible, because at some point the tribunal will say that we're, we're willing to extend time to some degree, but but not indefinitely. Um, so, yeah, get on and do it if that applies to you. Good to know. Also in the upper tribunal this month was the case of Babsar. Late application for PTA procedure 2019 UKUT 196 IAC. This one has been very well written up by Ian Halliday and it's about applying to the first tier tribunal for permission to appeal up to the upper tribunal if you miss the deadline. The procedure, according to this Bavzar case, is that the tribunal should refuse to admit the application rather than refuse permission to appeal. Ian rightly calls this a subtle distinction and it's uh, completely lost on me, I'm afraid, but um, basically seems to be helpful for late appellants. I, frankly, I'm not, I, I'm not sure why this is reported. I don't really understand this case. Um, it seems to be a sort of distinction without a difference. Um, I, I don't see what the practical, practical significance is. It just seems to be the tribunal kind of um, reporting case for the sake of it almost. But the, um, there is some significance um, to to one issue which i think is really worth highlighting that that ian brings up at the end of the post which is that the upper tribunal seems to be um, knocking a day off the common understanding of how long you've got to appeal by reinterpreting the meaning of must be received by as opposed to must be received on the 14th day 
and they seem to be saying, well, you've got to receive, got the, 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 the appeal has to be received before essentially, um, the 14th day. So, um, Ian says he's, he's recalibrating his, um, his, his deadlines on when appeals have to be lodged and other people will be well advised to do the same thing as well. So that, I think that bit is significant and unwelcome. The rest of it seems to be entirely kind of internal procedure within the, within the tribunal that seems to have, um, unless I'm missing something, no practical impact on, on anybody else. Fair enough. Just a quick word about being late in a different aspect of litigation. This is, uh, submitting hearing bundles late. And you had a hearing cancelled on you recently. You were saying after, after the paperwork was a day late and that the tribunal was really cracking down on this. Yeah, it was a bit bizarre, this one, because um, uh, I, I was appearing in um, Newport, which is now my, my local tribunal, and um, had this appeal cancelled, as you say. And um, I, I sort of wondered about whether to write up for the blog, because it is, you know, appeal cancelled is hardly hardly big news. But um, it seems to get quite a lot of interest on, on Twitter when I mentioned it, and it seems to be being applied at several different tribunal centres. Well, basically, if you haven't lodged your appeal um, by the f- five days before the appeal deadline then the hearing is automatically adjourned and then is going to be relisted at short notice later on. And um, unfortunately, not all solicitors have actually been notified of this. So in my case, the solicitors got notified of this policy and also got the case adjourned at the same time in the same bit of correspondence. And sort of telling people, yeah, I'm all in favour of compliance with the rules, but telling people what you're doing at the same time that you do it isn't going to help anybody comply um, on, or certainly on that occasion uh, although obviously it might encourage them to do so in future so it's a slightly bizarre um, policy there but it's also some people have pointed out if you you know traditionally it was very difficult to get adjournments in the immigration tribunal and this this policy allows you to just get an automatic adjournment by by not serving your appeal on t- your appeal bundle on time, so it, it has some slightly odd um, side effects as well. I'd be interested to see whether they carry on with this. It's described as a pilot for now. Whether it becomes permanent or not, I don't know. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting about this is that I, you know, judges only ever get the appeal bundle on the day of the hearing, as I understand it, or they can drive to the tribunal centre and pick it up the night before if they really want to. Um, so it doesn't really seem to make any difference to the judges themselves what at what point the appeal bundle goes in. It does make a difference to the Home Office. And I just wondered whether this was a change that was driven really by the Home Office rather than the tribunals. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. You know, in terms of whether it sticks around, it was described to you, I think, as a pilot. But on Twitter, people were saying that it's going back months and months at some hearing centre, so it seemed pretty well embedded. Uh, but we shall see. Finally, this month, uh, confirmation in the latest immigration stats that fully half of all immigration appeals succeeded last year. Uh, 52% of first-tier first year tribunal appeals were successful in the 2018-19 financial year. It's never been that high before. Just, just bad decision-making, Colin? Yeah, it's. A, I think it's a combination of bad decision by the home, bad decision making by the Home Office, um, and perhaps, and this is being very generous, perhaps you know, uh, Home Office appeal policy and limiting rights of appeal and so on might have um, restricted that to people who are more likely to to succeed. So you've got the right people appealing. I haven't seen the Home Office attempting to put that positive spin on the figures, um, and I, I doubt whether that's really the case. Um, 
But um, no, it, it's it, it's good news for those people who do manage to successfully bring an appeal. It's kind of bad news for those people who've lost their right of appeal, though, because it suggests that you know they're they're not able to appeal and and get the get these kind of decisions overturned, and that perhaps a lot of poor decisions are not successfully being challenged. Absolutely, uh, but I suppose for people who do have a right of appeal, it's uh, your your chances seem quite good just purely on the statistics so yeah it's good news it means that an appeal is is worth it essentially um which is i suppose good news for for immigration lawyers like me right well i think that probably wraps up for this month so thank you for listening we'll be back next month goodbye <laughs>